1: Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that clambers through the cupboard of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm taking very small steps in catching up. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So, Jake this is uh our 11th episode so far but our 10th film mm. in the Ghibli canon Arietti you're, uh, you're you've you've passed a decade now double digits i yeah. made it yeah um i'm on my way to becoming a real man a real <laughs>
0: live boy yeah um any any observations as we go um no i'm i've it's so interesting to just see both my re- the development of my reactions to the films as we kind of move past the big hitters into the ones that maybe are filling in the biggest gaps for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was already kind of aware of the role and influence of some of the films like A Grave of the Fireflies or A Spirited Away. Uh, whereas something like uh, what we're talking about today, Arietti was, I know it's a big release and it made a lot of money, But for me, it never had any social impact at Mm -hmm. all. Like No one ever really spoke to me about it, didn't know much of the imagery or anything like that. And that's really what we're at the stage at in the show now. And we're we're really uh, filling in those empty spaces. And arguably, that's maybe
1: the most exciting bit because it's a whole brave new world. Yes, we're digging into some, some would say the smaller scale films. And in this case, that's literally... Uh, accurate. Mm. Uh, this is Arietti, the borrower. Arietti, the secret world of Arietti in some territories. Jake, are you ready? I'm so ready. Arietti is a young girl who lives with her family of tiny borrowers who reside under the floorboards and in between the walls of a country house. They forage for food and supplies by making daily excursions into the house, all the while staying out of human sight. But when a teenage boy comes to the house to rest before an operation on his heart, an unlikely bond forms between human and borrower, bringing new excitement and new dangers into the lives of Arietti and her family. The question remains, can these two households live side by side in peace? Now, Michael, we've we've spoken
0: before about uh Ghibli's inspirations from kind of classical European texts and traditional English fairy tales, that kind of feeling. Uh and The Burrows is very much that story to me. Like this is uh, almost a Sunday afternoon BBC family friendly special. Yeah, literally um, so.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and, and in the nineties was it was a Hollywood movie with John Goodman,
0: yeah. And uh, I'm really fascinated to know how Ghibli ended up doing a borrower's story.
1: Well, it's interesting. Uh, Miyazaki and Takahata loved Mary Norton's original book um, decades before this film was made, but that was back before they had the clout to make adaptations. And this is something, as we go on, you'll notice. This is around the time where suddenly Ghibli make a lot of adaptations of English-language British works. We've we've had Howl's Moving Castle already. He follows with *Arietti*. Then we also have Tales from Earthsea. And then When Marnie Was There. These are all books from the uh, in- English-language literary canon, or young adult canon and he's scratching that itch now that maybe he didn't have previously but let's set some context after the huge success of Ponyo um, in 2008-2009 Miyazaki approaches producer Toshio Suzuki with a plan he says I have a five-year plan which involves stepping back from the director's role and into more of a planning producer role and letting two younger filmmakers from the studio stable to take on feature film Directing duties, and these pr- projects would be from up on Poppy Hill, uh, which would eventually be directed by Miyazaki's son Gorō. But then there's also Arietti, um, and the the complication there was who would they have to direct mm-hmm. and toshio suzuki immediately recommends hiromasa Yonebayashi, who's a name we'll come back to time and again mm-hmm. but back then he was just an animator he joined the studio for spirited away he remembers that the very first frames that he animated were part of the opening scenes of spirited away the dad at the food market shoveling spring rolls into his mouth mm-hmm. but uh definitely a, a sort of ghibli lifer at this stage he said that when he was at college the film that changed his life was whisper of the heart right and that informed everything he wants to do going on
0: i i wonder after Hasoda's uh, exit from House Moving Castle uh, and that experiment was bringing in an outsider to the studio. Now they felt maybe a bit safer if they were going to have a new director
1: come in. It had to be someone who knew the studio. Exactly. He was very popular with the staff. He had a nickname Marrow uh, that, that lasts to this day. Um, but there's a funny story here. I think and you mentioned Hasoda and this Behind the scenes, tussling of, uh, you know, rattling of sabers and butting of heads between the older and younger generations. How Hasoda left the project because he, he said that, Hosoda uh, he, left Houseboom and Castle because he said that they wanted him to just make a Miyazaki movie. That's not what he wanted to do. Whereas, is Yonobayashi a safe pair of hands? Well, not necessarily in Miyazaki's uh, mind. Uh, Miyazaki was a bit baffled by the suggestion. Yonobayashi's almost an unambitious filmmaker at this stage, an animator. He had no intentions to direct. Suzuki and Miyazaki had to convince him to take take it on board. Um, And there's a very revealing uh, interview with Miyazaki on the dvd for Arietti, this is a promotional interview uh, that i think reveals something of the atmosphere and culture of ghibli at the a, time. Prom- a promotional interview that's meant to be selling the film it's all it's an extra on the disc that was made I, I i think the film is still in production at this point so it's right up front but it's miyazaki sitting in front of a bookcase and a massive and next to a massive totoro doll in toshio suzuki's office chain smoking and he says um He's in a gloomy mood. He says, I had envisaged that we'd produce a lot of new talent, people who were ambitious and had an ex- inexhaustible supply of ideas, but we haven't. So we assigned the job to Maro, who just stood there vacantly. <laughs> this is as I a pr- promotional interview. I Miyazaki mean, always looking off screen at the end of every sentence at Suzuki, who I think is sitting at his desk just off camera. Is everyone um, recording that must
0: just be hoping that that's a joke. Well, oh, this is the thing. What is the atmosphere in the room? Let, let, me t-
1: let me quote a few more parts of this interview because it's really, really shocked me. Um, there's, a, there's a whole sequence where, uh, of the interview where Miyazaki says, he's a good guy, but that alone won't produce a good film. There's no use flattering him, as you can see. He's not suited to dealing with the public. We'd rather hide him, hide him away, not let him wander around. And at the end of all these things, he does kind of have a, have a, have a pause and then laugh and then look off camera at Suzuki and says, am I being too honest? But there's a whole sequence where he just criticises Yonobayashi already for how he's dealing with the interview that he's just recorded for this disc. Very bizarre. And on the flip side, in Yonobayashi's interview, he was asked about his relationship with Miyazaki. And he said when he first started working on Spirited Away, working at Ghibli, he was, you know, in the in the same room as the great Miyazaki, this great filmmaker. But he was soon put in his place. He was called over by Miyazaki and given a dressing down, given an earful, at which point Yonobayashi says he almost burst into tears right in front of him. He's, he recalls a, a day when he turned up in shorts and sandals in, in the summer months for the office. And Miyazaki came over and pointed to him and said, why do we, why did we hire him? <laughs> and he, uh, there's a segment of the interview which is Yonobayashi's memories of working with Miyazaki. And uh, Yonobayashi has this sort of thousand-yard stare where he says, as for memorable incidents with Miyazaki, I don't have many good memories. <laughs> So, this probably gives they, how, you a taste of Why did of that? they
0: decide this guy was
1: the one for the job when think, seemingly they, they, none of them like him? I think they like him, but it's just this ribbing. Maybe there's something being lost here in translation as mm. part of the intergenerational father-son banter. I mean, literal, if you, when, we, when we come to Goro Miyazaki's films, it's even worse. But... Um, this is just the first step for Yonobayashi. He's clearly um, well-regarded by Miyazaki and Suzuki because he makes another film a couple of yeah. years down the line it's, when Marnie it's was like there. like a Ghibli version of hazing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's a great quote from Yonobayashi. He says that Miyazaki's words can pierce you right through to the heart. Um, wow. Maybe not the best boss. No. Great filmmaker, right? Yeah. Anyway... Marietti's finished, released in July 2010, and it's a box office hit, but not to the heights of a Miyazaki movie. Reportedly, over a million people went to see it opening weekend, and it landed in third position at the Japanese box office for that year just behind two disney movies in fact alice in wonderland and toy story 3 which curiously has a cameo from a totoro oh, in yeah. it which is an interesting way of miyazaki one-upping on a bayashi there maybe <laughs> um but in a unique turn of events it comes out in the uk first uh, july 2011 Canal and optimum releasing put a lot behind this one uh but it gets a huge a bigger push in america um uh, in february 2012. it's retitled the sequel the secret world of Ariety, and given a bit of a disney sheen on the promotional materials mm. and is released in over 1500 cinemas
0: which is like that's huge numbers like spirited away was what
1: like 20 30 screens. yeah uh, ghibli films before that had never been released on more than 36 screens in a single weekend so to go from that to 1500 I mean, Ponyo had a, had a larger-scale release, but this was, you know, by far the largest to date. And as a result, it makes just shy of $20 million in the States, which is to date the highest-grossing Ghibli film in the United States beyond any Miyazaki movie. So at least on the international uh, stage, Yonori beats Miyazaki. Yeah,
0: it's, it's really interesting stuff. I'm certainly excited to hear a lot, or delve into the reactions to Arietti because, I mean... It went big on release, Mm. but the whole thing for me felt small scale for Ghibli. Exactly. Let's see what you made of it, Jake.
2: Maladies, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello fresh.
1: So, Jake, we have covered a film before directed by someone not Miyazaki or, or Takahata, that was Whisper of the Heart, but this is a new generation coming mm. to Studio Ghibli, Hiramasa Yonobayashi's first film. Did you notice anything different? Any, any, uh, anything, anything surprise you?
0: It's a funny one because of the story behind it. It was like when I was watching it, I was constantly thinking, right, what's the same and what's different? Mm. Uh, how is this person trying to make their own mark? And how are they mimicking what's come before them? And I think there are a lot of similarities to other Ghibli works or what people like myself as a more casual viewer might easily recognize as a Ghibli film. And it's extremely relaxed in pace. Mm. Uh, It's relatively quiet. And at the start, we're in a country house. Uh, It's quite overgrown. There's green lawns. Uh, There's like in a very totoro type way we've got someone who is ill and they're taken to the country to get the clean air and feel better um, we've got a, a young girl on a bit of an adventure mm-hmm. uh, trying to or making a big step in her role in the world and a lot of familiar territory but in a way I also felt that it was like I mean, there's going to be so many puns in this one, <laughs> in this episode, but it it is almost a bit too small. Yes. I felt like the the big joke of The Borrowers or any film like this, or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or something, mm. it's all to do with scale and there's a lot of sight gags in there or being creative with how what can you do with a small person in a big world. Mm. And actually that felt a bit underused. Mm-hmm. At the start, I thought, oh, this is really neat, that they're not just going in with an Ant-Man. They're not just going, here is a small thing next to a big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't that great? And that's, that's the obvious joke. And I thought, oh, they're, they're building a world first before we start playing around with that. And we'll actually see the family's house and we'll just get little bits of background information that show us how this world has been built. We've got the lid of a fount- fountain pen, it's mm-hmm. a vase. We've got a little thimble as a lamp Mm. and i thought that was all really nice but ultimately the integration with the wider world didn't feel exploited enough. Mm. i thought there was actually missing a bit of fun
1: yeah i I sometimes i i see this film as almost being in search of a plot Mm. even then writing that plot synopsis or reading it out that's not really the film there's only one real moment of action and that's at the end when the family have to move away. Everything else is so much mood and so much sense of discovery and exploration. I wonder whether this gets to the heart of something that's different about Miyazaki and Yonobayashi. Yonobayashi is a very emotional filmmaker. This generation gap between the two where Miyazaki was looking at children and saying I want to create a character for them. Yonobayashi think, you know, it has... A closer affinity to his character.
0: Mm. He's we, in his thirties when making this. Late thirties, yeah.
1: So he's, you know, in the grand scheme of things in the Japanese film industry, a, a very young guy. Um, but he's so this there's this melancholy emotional texture all the way through about you know, torture teenage souls and unattainable romance, mm. you, know, you know, this star-crossed lovers that just by a sense of size and scale, they could never be together. Um and I think Yonobiashi sees himself in, the, in that role, in that character, he is Arietti, or he is the boy, the teenage boy. Um, we'll see this more with When Marnie Was There. And about the sense of the style, Toshio Suzuki says something very interesting in his memoirs where he says that Yonobayashi is a better stage manager than director. If a director like Miyazaki is somebody who stamps their personality and point of view on every frame of the movie, um, Yonobayashi is more like a stage manager who um, allows every other craftsmen to do the job well
0: yeah I, there, there was not a lot here that made it feel like stylistically distinct mm-hmm. from some of the other works I've seen there there are a few bits that I really liked like something that not didn't shock me but was a really nice surprise in the earlier moments of the film is how it works with focus yeah uh, something that I hadn't even thought about with the other works that we've watched is uh, how they use the depth of field and how shallow a frame might be mm-hmm. and it's a simple thing to use on a film like this, where you are involving a lot of scale. So if you can rack focus from someone in the distance who is big mm-hmm. and then pull in to a leaf or a piece of grass and then put a small person mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. that leaf, it has a lot of impact for something quite small. And that's really nice that you are getting huge impact from a relatively simple thing. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's the that was Yonobayashi's objective here. How can we do something that has a, that is a big world, mm-hmm. but in a very small way, quite literally?
1: Exactly. And he was so interested. He says he was, as I said earlier, he was reluctant to take on this project, but Miyazaki and Suzuki gave him the novel and said, "Read the novel, come back to us and tell us what you think." And he was at the time invigilating the entrance exams for the young, the new class of Ghibli animators. And while he was invigilating, he was reading the book, and immediately he was. Just entranced by how to make this world work, mm. the the idea of, as you say, a thimble being you know being a normal sized receptacle in this world, or having a house where you see a, a rolling landscape outside the window, but it's actually a postcard that's been placed just outside a frame, and that's what excited him: the idea of a small person in this big world. And you can see that these sequences, there's that first borrowing sequence where Arietti and her father go out, yeah. and um, I th- I think is a really great scene. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: this is perhaps the most foreboding I've known the studio ever to be. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the emo Yonibiyashi, yeah. yeah, totally here. It's almost a dirge at times. Like we are, it's quite adventurous, and we've got nails uh, that have been bashed into a wall, mm. and it's almost like a level from the Crystal Maze, or <laughs> mixed with the Mines of Moria. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I really loved that, and I loved actual tension which I'm not used to feeling with watching this but there was no payoff of that Mm -hmm. tension and that that was the thing that I felt was missing from the film that what that scene leads to is them seeing the boy Mm -hmm. and then that was it and I just felt after all that build up and you almost teased with the again going back to this idea of scale and how can we play the large with the big it's like you're waiting for a punchline the whole time that's mm-hmm. not quite there or they don't integrate
1: well there's there's no sense of stakes in this movie um but one thing it does have that miyazaki movies don't ha- don't have is i think an outright villain maybe the, the first villain mm. we've touched on in this yes. in this podcast it's haru the the maid yeah and, uh, before we dive into her i want to point out that uh, the voice of Haru in the Japanese language version of the film is by Kirin Kiki, who's this great actress who passed away this year. She's seen in many Hirokazu Kureida films, six in fact. Um, most recently in her in her final film, Shoplifters, which won the, the Cannes uh, Prize this year. And as we're recording, is in UK cinemas just coming up. So the fact that she's there is giving she's got this incredible old lady voice she's mm. she's, a, she's a very good sort of kindly slightly sinister old lady in mm. many films with a bit of an edge to her and she brings that to this role where she is an actual antagonistic figure who mm. for some reason that isn't really clear really wants to get rid of the borrowers from the house yeah.
0: and and we're getting this these mixed um this mixed execution of in one way we're w- wanting to make a film with no conflict and no plot mm. and we have seen that work before and I'm, I'm, listeners might think I'm contradicting myself mm-hmm. with what I enjoy about these films that I'll say, oh, I love the second half of How the Moving Castle. Because we're it not. chilled out. Yeah, yeah or I love Totoro because of exactly that reason. But perhaps it's the contrast in Arieti that we're being presented with an idea in one way, but then we're also being presented with a villain who is meant to instigate that conflict. Uh, and the two parts don't quite work together. And she, for me, has yeah, as you say, has no reason to hate them so much. Mm -hmm. And because it's not believable, you ultimately don't warm to her in any way, which you need to do with a villain to actually get some empathy for them uh,
1: to Mm -hmm. balance out the story. Mm -hmm. It does give rise to a second key scene for me, which is this brilliant sequence going back to Yonobayashi as a a sort of stage manager, it's a very well executed sequence where you're in the borrower's house and the mum is pottering around and the roof is ripped off. And it's actually the the boy, yeah. And he's being very, he's doing a very kind thing of bringing them the kitchen from the doll's house. This amazing uh, tricked-out kitchen that the, the mum, the mum, the borrower mum has always wanted. Um, and it's seen from the borrower's point of view, where it's almost this uh, kaiju movie, mm. where this huge monster is messing with their business. And then you see that scene play out and then it almost has a mirrored effect where you go from Haru's point of view where she finds where the the borrowers are in that cupboard and the floorboards. But then you see it from her point of view as she rips off the, the roof once more and sees the tiny borrower just <laughs> shivering away in fear, tries to run and immediately gets scooped up in her hand. And that's such a well-choreographed scene. This yes. is something that's a very well-animated sequence oh, I, I, and, and film in general. Much like the... Um...
0: The ladder on the the nail ladder, mm-hmm. um, first borrowing that I mentioned earlier. There, that that's where you're actually you're getting a real sense of fear mm-hmm. in and in, in these two scenes. And I think maybe we could have done with a bit more of that. But mm-hmm. uh, as you said, that's one of the moments where it's really working the scale for you. Like I think the kaiju point is exactly right. You feel like uh, we're we're somehow in uh, a little a. Tiny portion of a Ghibli Michael
1: Bay film. Or yeah, something. that could be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but as I say, there's, there's this sense of Yonabayashi as a great animator, but not quite there as a storyteller yet. Mm. Um, a couple of key minor characters are so well animated. I think we've talked about Ghibli cats before, but the cat in this film is like none we've seen. The fact that it's just, it's shaped almost like the cat in Whisper of the Heart. It's it's this big brown ball uh, with a gr- grumpy, tired eyes. But you're talking about monster movie. When we're first introduced to, her, to the cat and it's bounding across the, the garden and trying to get through the grate into the, into the cellar, it's a proper monstrous, uh, yeah. you know, antagonistic force. Yeah. But then the cat gets redeemed at the end.
0: Oh, of course, it's gonna, if it's Ghibli, they've got to redeem the cat. Exactly. The cat's got to be the hero in some way. Um, I would just like to quickly mention something that I, I really liked about it. Was, and it's quite a, a, a simple way of working with that idea of scale and size was how the sound design worked in Mm. the film and there are bits where they're uh, having to they're trying to steal a sugar cube and in the background there's a grandfather clock going Mm. and that could just be sitting in the background or you could amp up the tension by using the score but they just use that clock and really reverb it up and you can't help but not notice it, and we're almost in a Mission Impossible zone. Yes, and you have this replacement of the uh, natural sound effects of different objects. Like Arietti has a pin that she keeps in her. She almost like a, a, a makeshift scabbard that she yeah. makes out of her dress. Yes, yeah. Um, but then when she wields that. It's as if it is a medieval sword mm-hmm. or something,
1: and there's lots of little tricks of sound that I think well, you mentioned really the sound well. design. Well, the first moment, and this is where we get back to Emo uh, Yanobayashi, that this in the intensity of of, of a youthful romance mm. that he gets in a way that the older f- filmmakers maybe don't. There's that sequence where Arietti is trying to come in from the outside into the boy's bedroom through the window, this little gap in the in the window, and there's a, is it a crow or a blackbird is trying to eat her, and mm. he jumps up and he tries and he. M- m- Moves the the bird out of the way, but there's this little moment where his hand just touches Arietti, and the sound just disappears, mm. and it's oh, being touched by the boy that I fancy. Yeah, is this great moment in the film, and you can see that he's thinking on that level rather than a didactic level or even a political, socio-political level that Miyazaki looks at. Mm. Um, I think this is this is something, you want to be Biachi is almost a victim of Stockholm syndrome when it comes to Ghibli. You've talked, we talked about Hosoda, Hosoda, uh, Mom- when well, we talked about um, Housebuffin Castle and how he had to go elsewhere, and he's made an incredible career for himself where mm. his films are only his films. Um, whereas Yona is still making what we've called in the past Jukebox Ghibli.
0: Yeah, movies. it totally feels like maybe Hosoda was meant to come in, fall in line, here's how you make the films. Didn't and he was not that guy. Whereas here, if we just hand over the blueprints, this is how you do it. These are the things that you need to tick off, mm-hmm.
1: and ultimately leaves something missing. Yeah, and that is st- still right through to today, uh, Yonobayashi... In the in the period where Ghibli closed down production after when Marnie was there is released, um, Yonebiashi and uh, Nishimura, one of the one of the other producers, uh, go and form their own company called Studio Ponots, and they made a movie called Mary and the Witch's Flower, which is in terms of the look the aesthetic the feel the animation the the greatest miyazaki movie miyazaki never made (laughs) it and it's packed with it's the greatest hits Mm. and it's so interesting to hear him speak about that fractious relationship with miyazaki whether it's a joke or not because he's still making films within that shadow um and this is where it all starts
0: and where this film ends seems to be actually the end of the first act (laughs)
1: Yes, exactly. You look at other Miyazaki movies, you know, Spirited Away, we've not got to Kiki's delivery service yet, but it's always about these girls going on an adventure, going out into the world, Mm. finding themselves. And that's where Arrietty finishes with her. It's actually the closing credits Mm. where you see her and Spiller, um, her new rough boyfriend potentially, uh, going off down the canal. Yeah,
0: which uh, it was like a nice ending to look at. Mm -hmm. I, I do have to ask you about the music. Where did that come from? Because it's horrid. I mean, I, I don't know much about it, but the some of these songs, they're like... 10 a.m. slot on a Glastonbury alternate stage well it's the
1: first score that we've covered and in the Ghibli history uh, that was created by someone not Japanese it's Cecile Corbel, who is a French Breton singer um very much soaked in that Celtic folky mm. world she did she loved the movies she loved Ghibli and she sent a mixtape um to uh, to Toshio Suzuki in fact and he really responded to it and just thought why not and De- Why not? What? Well, there's, there's, <laughs> it sounds like you know why not. Yeah. You have a reason why not. And, and so it didn't really work for you,
0: did it? No, it didn't. Um, but i got to see how this one worked for you, Michael. I think it's time to put this film on our leaderboard. So now it's that moment where we ask Michael Leader to rank these films. Uh, our list is getting ever longer. This is number 10, but is it going to be number 10 on the list, Michael? It is going to be
1: number 10 on the list, oh, Jake. Cruel. Um, so this is now bumping Hellsweaving Castle up a slot. So just in the top 10 still. Will it stay in the top just 10 for longer? in the top 10 out of 10. <laughs> But I must say, we've talked in the past about tears. If I was giving this a star rating, this would still be three out of five. This is still, we're still far from bad movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, will we ever see any bad movies in the next ten films, Jake? Yeah. Is the question? I mean,
0: as we as we know, you started me at the top tier. It's only, this show's only going to get worse, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um,
0: but that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the Bibliotech next week the cat returns
1: another film by a different filmmaker Mm. a sequel this is our first sequel it's a pseudo sequel spin-off from the whisper of the heart which is number one on the leaderboard isn't it so high anticipation for this Mm. one jake but before we go we just want to say thank you to silk factory who helped us make the show
0: yep we're lucky enough to be sat in their studio in soho right now recording this but they don't just make podcasts like ours.
1: They also make concept TV digital social platforms and trailers too.
0: Yep, go and check out their work at thesilkfactory.co.
1: And that just about wraps things up. Until next time, you can follow Jake on Twitter at jkhcunningham. Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J Leader. is a Little Dot Studios production. We record at Silk Factory. Our music is made by Anthony Ng. Our artwork is by Sophie Mo, And Steph Watts helps us out with all of our GIFs, images and anything else we post online. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts and Harold McShiel. That's me. I do the voiceover for the credits as well. Hi everyone, thank you for sticking with us through the credits. We have listeners from all over the shop, so I thought it would be a good little tidbit to point out that Ariati is the only Ghibli film with both an American and a British dub. If you're over in the States, you might not realise that we have a great English-language version over here with the likes of Saoirse Ronan, Mark Strong, Olivia Colman and future Spider-Man Tom Holland in his very first on-screen role. I'd say that's worth checking out if you want to listen to the dubs.